Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Celebrations that erupted after Joe Biden was projected winner of the 2020 presidential election have turned to expressions of concern, as it seems that Donald Trump never can say goodbye. We speak to Professor Gerald Horn. About half of the U.S. electorate and a supermajority of the Euro-American population across class lines, which is his base, are clearly ready for a kind of neo-fascism. I think we need to try to understand why. And though Biden voters are breathing a sigh of relief, left activists say not so fast. What will Biden do to address this country's reckoning on race, state violence, and the legacy of racial capitalism? We hear the address from Omali Eshetela speaking at the Black Power Matters rally and march to the White House. We say Black Power Matters. Black Power Matters. And then we say, down with colonialism. That's a system. I don't give a damn if your colonial master likes you or not. You're going to stay colonized. Down with the system of colonialism. All that, thoughts on Veterans Day, and much more, coming up. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, 10 days after the 2020 presidential election, nearly a week after former Vice President Joe Biden was projected as the winner of both the popular vote and the Electoral College, Donald J. Trump has not conceded he lost. While actively blocking the incoming Biden administration from connecting with transition resources and replacing top Pentagon officials, Trump is suing several jurisdictions about unfounded claims of voter fraud. Activists say he is basically trying to throw out the votes of black and brown people across the country while inciting his followers who plan to rally here in Washington, D.C. on Saturday, November 14th, under the banner Stop the Steal, meaning the supposed stolen election. The million MAGA rally will be met by counter-demonstrations rallying to count every vote, respect the vote, and refuse fascism. To quote an article in The Guardian by activist David Sirota, The Republicans' bid to overturn the election is a full-scale emergency, and yet the Democratic strategy seems to be to pretend it isn't happening. Well, here to help us unpack it all is On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. His most recent book is Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. And I'm diving right into our headlines. So is Trump trying to just buy time or to save face? Or is this something more serious? I think it's something more serious. But keep in mind, with regard to Mr. Trump, who hasn't spoken publicly in a few days, it's unsure what he's up to. It may just be another fundraising gambit, that is to say, challenging the votes and then getting his more avid supporters to write checks. It may be a way to keep the voters in Georgia and the Trump base engaged, given the fact that the control of the Senate will turn on those two races that will be decided in Georgia in early January 2021. 
We also know that he has a material incentive to remain in office because once he leaves office, he will be facing prosecutors in New York City and New York State and a pardon from himself or from him resigning and turning over power to Michael Pence for a day or so won't save him. And therefore, we should seriously consider the possibility of a slow motion coup. I'm chastened by the fact that David Ignatius of the Washington Post, who is their national security reporter and columnist, has not ruled out the possibility of a coup by Mr. Trump. Keep in mind that one of the ways this could be done is by having legislators in states like Pennsylvania, where the Republicans have dominance, to send a slate of electors to Washington in December and ignore the popular will because they can say that the vote in Pennsylvania was marred by fraud. And if that happens in a number of other states, it could turn the tie against Mr. Biden. And keep in mind as well that the final chapter in this drama will take place on January 6th when Michael Pence presides over Congress and presumably will determine that the Electoral College says that Joe Biden should be inaugurated two weeks later. But recall that when Al Gore was faced with that challenge in 2001, and Maxine Waters and others in the Congressional Black Caucus sought to get him to renounce the Supreme Court decision and the decision that had turned Electoral College votes in Florida over to Mr. George W. Bush, that Al Gore waved away Maxine Waters and these challenges. I don't expect Michael Pence to do the same thing, quite frankly. So I would urge all who are capable and able to hook up with Protect the Results, which is this group that's promising massive civil disobedience in case there is an illegitimate effort to overturn the popular will as expressed on November 3rd, 2020. Right. Well, the coming week will perhaps give us more answers, but we may not really know how this all works out until the beginning of December, the deadline for the uh, states to certify their elections and the electors to do their jobs. So anyway, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. If you aren't already sick of people saying that Georgia is on all of our minds, you will be tired of it by the time January 5th rolls around. Of course, that is the date for the runoff to select that state's two senators, which will determine the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. And Joe Biden's apparent win in Georgia, turning it blue for the presidential race for the first time since 1992, has given Democrats hope that the path to knocking Mitch McConnell from his perch as Senate Majority Leader runs through Georgia. Well, to help us understand the Georgia race, I'm joined by Anoa Changa, activist, journalist, and host of the podcast, The Way with Anoa. Welcome to On the Ground, Anoa. Thank you for having me. Well, I have a lot of questions about the Georgia race, and these races are pitting, first of all, Republican David Perdue against Democrat John Ossoff. And then the other is to fill the seat that Kelly Loeffler was appointed to 
by the governor. And she's running against the Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. So I guess the first thing I'm trying to understand is that if a majority of people, even if by a slim margin, voted for Joe Biden for president, wouldn't that same compilation of voters uh, put the Democrats in? And so what are the complications that might not make that happen? You know, you are asking like the right question, though, to start this all off with. I had actually pulled a spreadsheet, downloaded the results of the votes that are uploaded, you know, so far and pulled the spreadsheet just to see how the different Senate races broke down. Right. In terms of like vote share, like which party got more votes. And we did see a gap between Ossip and Purdue in in terms of down ballot. But when you look at the vote share of all the Democrats, because the difference between the two races, it's just David Purdue was running for reelection and John Ossip challenged him. He emerged from the primary and he was the challenger. When you look at the other seat, the Loeffler seat, that is a special election. And so there are about 20 or so, a little more than 20 uh, candidates that were running, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Libertarians, and I think there's like one or two Green Party folks who ran. And so you had this huge field of people. So when you like just look at like all the Democrats who voted in that race versus all the Republicans, there were way more Democrats that cast ballots for that particular seat in that particular race. So how does it break down? I mean, there are a couple of different things that could explain the drop off from the presidential to the Ossoff race in particular. Mm-hmm. There just tends to be ballot fatigue, right? People drop off in terms of voters going down the ballot. And so I know a lot of folks who are doing organizing work are trying to encourage people to make sure that, like, if you did show up and you voted for Biden in the general election, you know, please make sure you're staying and coming and voting in the runoff. And these are the reasons why, right? That's part of the strategy, getting people to understand, one, there is a runoff and why people need to show up, right? I do think that we see more Democrats voting in the runoff election, than we did in, compared to Republicans in that election. And there's also a different level of respect and support for Purdue versus Loeffler happening down here. So it's also really interesting how that might play out. So I do know there is just also a difference in how the messaging worked around the Warnock running in that really long race. It was really interesting. He had a commercial that was just talking about, it was like him in a cafeteria. He was talking about how he's used to being at the bottom or at the end of the list, you know, his whole life from like back in school. My daughter, who's 19 and just voted for the first time this, this year, and my father, who's, you know, in his 60s, both commented on how relatable this commercial was, right? So he connected with multiple different age groups and Also, it was instructive because it let people know where to look on the ballot to find him. And so that type of stuff, I think, definitely clued people in to that race in particular. You know, speaking of organizing on the ground, I, I know that there was a lot of grassroots organizing happening that contributed to uh, this win for Joe Biden. And I think that in some of the broadcasts I've seen, of course, Stacey Abrams is getting her due. But I know that the movement was certainly a lot larger than her and uh, and happening for a lot longer than she was necessarily organizing. So could you just give us a sketch of that universe of different types of groups that came out, not just to organize for this election, but to organize voters and, and mm-hmm. get them excited about voting? Again, really, another really good question that gets us into a conversation about like how communities 
particularly black folks, right, are looking at the vote. As you noted, there are tons of organizations and there are issue based organizations that maybe they're not straight, you know, voting rights, voting engagement organizations. But folks recognize the connectivity between issues around voting rights and voter engagement and voter suppression. I mean, you have folks going back to like the 80s with like Georgia Stand Up and other organizations. You have the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda. You have the pro-Georgia C3 table. You have the New Georgia Project, which was started in 2013-2014 with Stacey Abrams and Nse Ufat, who currently still runs the organization. You have Black Voters Matter, which is based here, but also works throughout the South and a few other points north. So you have all these amazing, you know, Black-led organizations, but then you also have uh, Mahente has a presence here. You have GLAR. You have Asian Americans Advancing Justice. You have their C4 side, Asian American Advocacy Fund, I think it is, that are really trying to engage in community, authentically engaging folks and helping to build capacity in this recognition and understanding that this is a year-round thing. This is not just, oh, let me just hustle and pull together some funding from whatever candidate or campaign, you know, six weeks out before an election to see how many people we can just turn out. It's not just a turnout mill machine that we've seen traditionally in politics. It's really building with community. Like, how do we build, like, greater participation for the long run, right? Because democracy is a practice. It's not just a spectator sport that we show up for every several years. But at the same time, what's the strategy after elections, right? Like, part of having that accountability, we talk about holding people accountable, but part of the ability to hold people accountable is being able to have electeds that are amenable to the concept of co-governance, either because they're coming out of the same communities that are organizing or because you've built a big enough base to make that demand of them. I only have just a few more minutes. So I want to ask you about some of the, I guess, you know, energy or, you know, shade coming from Washington, D.C. around the DNC, trying to basically parachute in there and tell people, you know, don't talk about defund the police or don't talk about the Green New Deal or whatever. And as if these other issues that you're just enumerating don't exist and don't exist as a reason why people came out. So another way I want to ask this is, is this also a debate about whether the movement for black lives basically energize people to come out and to be new voters versus the the energy coming from the DNC, which is going to try to squash that movement or or to say that they're the reason why they lost other types of races in the House and even why Jamie Harrison may have lost in South Carolina. And it just seems so crazy to me. But what do you think from being on the ground? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the whole parachuting in, like, I mean, we saw this happen in 2017 and 2018. In 2017, we saw millions upon millions pour into a special election race for John Ossoff and folks on the ground could tell you how it was going but folks don't want to listen right people want to feel good and they spend their money um and then in 2018 we didn't see nearly the same amount of energy and money coming in for Stacey even once the general election was happening I mean yes mm. people fundraised and put that money in there but there was still you know, still what you see, the support given to an awesome, still what you see, the support thinking about the presidential election, what you would see given towards a Buttigieg versus a Castro. I mean, it's very telling, right? Like where where money and support and ideas are going because people are more interested in maintaining the status quo and keeping their feelings and not having their feelings hurt, right? Like Like being comfortable. And so what we're seeing right now is like people are talking a lot of whatever they're talking 
But the message that is being sent consistently across the board, which is, I was just joking with someone earlier. I was like, I was like, we promise we did not all have like a group chat where everyone was like, okay, this is the message everyone tell folks to stay out of Georgia unless they're talking directly to people. Like that is just naturally the mood because even folks in Georgia, right? Even Democrats in the party did not agree with the strategy that organizations have been doing that Stacey was doing with her campaign. Like, this is not, folks are like all excited right now and this control we're starting to see is like people are feeling that the their loss of power being cemented, right? And so what is really continuing forward is like folks are committed to doing what they do, which is, you know, organizing deep in community, turning out voters, but then also building it as an opportunity for, you know, the next thing, the next conversation, the next issue push, you know, building in moments of joy. Um, I, you know, I look at Black Voters Matter and the way they build joy into what they do. You know, there are some Asian American organizers in Gwinnett County that are doing things like uh, chai chats and other things that are just like real communal. And so the DNC is going to do whatever it's going to do. I'm sure... I can't speak for Stacy or Fairfight or any of the, you know, the apparatus here. I'm sure folks will handle it the way they handle it. The Georgia Democratic Party has had to shift to keep up. And I don't know that people there, there, there is definitely a faction that wants to be in line with Martha Moderate. But what I will also say is like the, those arguments about like whether people are saying like certain phrases like Green New Deal, etc. A lot of our communities definitely need these issues, right? So, like, my personal thought has been, having lived here, having lived previously in West Virginia, like, thinking, like, we need to be talking to people about, like, the issues in a way that's understandable and affects the means, conditions of their lives, right? Connecting to what's going on. Not getting so caught up in whether or not people are saying specific phrases. Now, I say that not because I think it's okay for folks to kind of be mealy-mouth or wishy-washy about where they stand on issues, but, like, really because I think we need to explain and break it down because most of our folks are not reading white papers, right? Like they're not, they might not even be reading articles talking about these things. So we really need to be explaining what we're talking about when we're, when we're stepping to folks. But what we do see is we do know that people are committed to issues around reproductive justice when we're in a state that does not have, that has half the counties without uh, OBGYN and we have one of the highest rates of, of black maternal mortality. We do know that climate justice, environmental issues are on people's concerns around water, whether that involves like utility issues and like egregious utility bills for folks downstate in particular, or it's, it's having like actual nuclear power plants and polluting factories like in their backyards. People understand these issues. We People understand that we do not have Medicaid expansion and they're actually trying to limit the um, healthcare.gov exchanges here so that would make it even more frustrating for folks who do not have insurance to be able to get insurance and more expensive. People understand like these real basic issues. And so we need to talk to folks in terms that they can understand but instead of getting caught up more so like what the national fight is. So what we, we do have, I mean, we definitely have disagreements in terms of like progressives or leftists and then liberals or more moderates. There are definitely like disagreements, but like the basic strategy of talking to people about issues and engaging with them where they are is non-negotiable. Well, I'm going to have to leave it there. But I want to thank my guest, Anoa Changa, activist, journalist, and host of the podcast, The Way with Anoa. Thank you, Anoa, for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And 
while the country is so focused on elections, the Supreme Court heard this week oral arguments again on the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. While court was in session inside, outside there were protesters like Mora, who suffers from epilepsy, rallying in support of the law. I'm here today as a recent college graduate, trying to find a job in a pandemic-wrought world, in a tanking economy, with a pre-existing condition that requires daily medication and appointments with a neurologist. Trump stacked this court to chip away at any semblance of reasonable health care in this country in order to benefit the private insurance companies, not we the people. In other happenings, former Amazon manager turned whistleblower Chris Smalls, who we interviewed on this show not long ago, announced online Thursday that he is filing a class action lawsuit in New York for all Amazon employees and all essential workers. Refuse Fascism and other groups are planning a counter-demonstration to the Million MAGA March for Saturday, November 14th, noon at Freedom Plaza in Northwest D.C. In This Week in History, the Wilmington Insurrection or Massacre of 1898 was a mass riot carried out by white supremacists in North Wilmington, North Carolina on November 10th, 1898. A mob of 2,000 white men overthrew the legitimately elected local government and expelled black and white political leaders from the city, destroyed the property and businesses of black citizens built up since the Civil War, including the only black newspaper in the city, and killed an estimated 60 to more than 300 people. The riot and massacre initiated an era of severe racial segregation and effective disenfranchisement of blacks throughout the South, especially in areas where they held the majority, as in Wilmington, North Carolina. On November 9th and 10th in 1938, the Crystal Knot, Night of Crystal, pogrom, was launched in Germany as Nazi paramilitary forces at the head of mobs burned more than 260 synagogues and vandalized some 7,000 Jewish shops and homes across Germany. Tens of thousands were arrested and interned, and more than 90 were murdered during the rioting. And on Veterans Day, on this show, we remember Lavina Johnson, an Army private found shot in the head, beaten, and sexually assaulted in a contractor's tent while stationed in Iraq in 2005. Despite contrary physical evidence, including the fact that her arms were not long enough to shoot herself in the head with an M16 rifle, Lavina's death was ruled a suicide. Her father, Dr. Donald Johnson, spearheaded an investigation. The case received national attention from news organizations and human rights organizations, but the military did not budge from its conclusion of a suicide. As in the recent case of Vanessa Guillen, a soldier murdered at Fort Hood in Texas, law spearheaded by former Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill, left in place procedures that facilitate the U.S. military's rampant rape culture by allowing the military to police itself and force women to report assaults to their superior even if that superior is a suspected rapist. Several links and information about the case of Levina Johnson are maintained at the site thehueandcry.com, and there's also a site in her name, levinajohnson.com. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Love, 
Why do we want these people from, quote, all these whole countries here? Sarah, you said in an interview this morning on the coronavirus, this thing's going away. It will go away like things go away, despite ongoing... It's going away now. It'll go away like things go away. Absolutely. It's, uh... Why are you always lying? Always lying to me. He built the greatest economy the world has ever known. Why you always lying? It's funny how money changes situation. Who you gonna scrimmage like you the champion? You might win some, but you just lost one, lost one. Good evening. I'd like to provide the American people with an update on our efforts to protect the integrity of our very important 2020 election. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. And we can't let that happen. Detroit and Philadelphia, no to no to no to no. Chairman Amali Yashitala is the author of many books, including An Uneasy Equilibrium, The African Revolution versus Parasitic Capitalism, and his latest release, Vanguard, The Advanced Detachment of the African Liberation. Our chairman! This is a rehearsal because on one of these occasions we're going to march to the White House and demand that the inhabitants come out with their hands on their heads and, and demand that they should assume the position. Right? That's, that's, that's what will happen. Because that White House, regardless of who inhabits that place, has never, will never, is incapable of representing the interests of African people and the vast majority of the people on the world. It's a blight. It's a blight on humanity. And it doesn't make any difference. It's the public face, the head of that thing, is named Joe Biden, 
or Donald J. Trump. There's not a dime's worth of difference in the two of them as it relates to the conditions of existence of African people who have suffered 400 years in this country, some 600 years around the world, are the worst kind of oppression. The oppression that gave birth to this social system that so many people say they are opposed to. So this is an important mobilization. And I want to say that one thing is really significant for us to also understand that there was a revolutionary movement in this country in the 1960s. I'm not saying this to wax nostalgia or anything like that, but you must understand this history, this history of a movement that was so powerful that the, that the chief assassin, the assassin uh, in, in chief, uh, in this instance, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the guy who presided over the secret political police called the FBI at that time. He declared that the Black Panther Party was the greatest internal threat to the security of the United States since the Civil War. He didn't say that it was uh, somebody, uh, ISIS or some other entity in some other area. He recognized it right here. And what we must understand is that we have developed a revolutionary movement because like all people, everywhere in the world, we always try to solve a problem the easy way. So we were brought to this country in captivity. African people are the only people in this country other than the indigenous people themselves who did not come to this country looking for a better way of life. We lost a better way of life as a consequence of the attack on Africa that brought us here. So we've been fighting to win our freedom, like all dignified people do, like all people with any sense of their own significance do. We have been fighting to liberate ourselves, to guarantee that our children will know a future not because of a good white man getting elected or not elected or a good Negro woman, man, etc., who represent a white man. We have concluded that we will know, our children know freedom because we will take it and possess it ourselves. That's our responsibility. That's our responsibility. There's no people on earth with any kind of integrity would fight for anything less than that. Absolute, total, unambiguous control of our own lives and our destiny. That's our responsibility to do that. That's what revolutions are made of. That's why Ho Chi Minh said there's nothing more precious than freedom and independence. There is nothing more precious than freedom and independence. And that means for African people too. So I just think it's really important to establish that and to say some things about why we're here. But I want to be clear that what distinguishes this mobilization is the fact that a revolution that was crushed in the 1960s with the murder of Malcolm X by the government, with the murder of Martin Luther King by the government, with the assassination of more than 30 members of the Black Panther Party by the government, with more than 300 members of the Black Panther Party thrust into prison in 1968 alone. This government killed, smashed our organizations, scattered the members of our organizations, 
These were people who had moved beyond simply begging and trying to become one with a system of oppression. We had moved beyond that. There was no hands up, don't shoot. In fact, it was the police who was saying, don't shoot. Because our movement had achieved a revolutionary character where we had determined we will have our own freedom, as Malcolm X said, by any means necessary. Our freedom, it belongs to us. Somebody stole it from us, we're taking it back. That's the only way we'll get it. But this requires organization. And it requires an element of political clarity. And that's why this mobilization is so, so, so important. And McGinty won't do, not now. We're talking about a period where in a short moment of time, since March, something like 10,000 protests and uprisings happened in this country. Many bad people who never been involved in protests at all because they have become disgusted with the ability of this government to produce anything that's like security. People hate capitalism. So you got some capitalists who are running out claiming to be socialists. Running for office, in fact. People, Africans, were demanding reparations. We demanded reparations. We held the first national reparations tribunal in this country, New York, in 1982. People were demanding reparations. And when we first started, people were saying that demand for reparations, that was a lunatic fringe. But now, reparations is something that's grasped the masses of African people and the old capitalist oppressors understand that. And so now they get in front of it too, just like they try to get in front of the question of socialism and they say, reparations. But their reparations doesn't mean what we talk about when we say reparations. They talk about reparations, they're looking for another poverty program. They're looking for a slick welfare program. We say reparations. We say repair the damage. We have to have those resources that negates the influence and economic authority of white power over our lives. Something that, something that contributes to the development of our whole people. We say the demand for reparations is a revolutionary demand. It's a function of the revolution. That's what the demand for reparations is. And I'm glad to see that there are white people who are standing up saying reparations now. Who's standing with for a person? I don't, there's no better stance. You know where a white person stands by their ability to unite with the demand for reparations to black people. Because every dream, every aspiration that white people have in this country, much of the world, requires wars against the oppressed peoples of the world to steal the oil, to steal the cobalt, to steal the diamonds, to steal the gold, to steal the labor, to steal everything that they've gotten from us. So when you want to be on the right side as a white person, what you do? You say, I want to unite with you, what you do? You say, unity through reparations. Unity through reparations. That's the thing that takes the stance. We say material solidarity is what makes a difference. Chigavara once said that, and when it comes to solidarity, he said that it's not a matter of well-wishing. Solidarity is not a matter of well-wishing. He said it's sharing the same fate, whether in victory or death. That's what, that's what solidarity is all about. So we require genuine solidarity. But this is not because we are looking for vengeance or anything like that. It's because we know the nature of the social system and what brought it into existence. Why did capitalism happen? 
Was it because Jesus decided at some juncture to bring all the wealth of the world and give it to white people? Was it because of some other mysterious thing like that? No. When I was growing up, I was literally taught in school that I went to that the reason I could look around the world and see people who look like me living in violence and imposed ignorance, poverty, uh, as compared to white people, I was told that's because white people are more civilized. Yes. White people are thriftier than yes. you are. Oh, all of these the reasons they give us for yes. the difference in the relations, the conditions of the existence of the people. Right. But then I came to understand that ain't got nothing to do with it. That's right. Because uh, just the four short years, 1347 to 1351, is that four years? Yes. So four years. Half the white people on the planet Earth died. They died by the plague. That's right. And how, and for the next hundred years or so, that plague devastated much of Europe. Yes. And would leave and come back. You think COVID-19, the coronavirus or something, that plague that they had to deal with was hellacious. Yes, it was. And so if you have a population, if you have a country or a nation that loses something like more than half of the population in four short years, there's no such thing as the viable economy. I don't give a damn what somebody says. I don't care what happened in Vienna. There, there is no such thing as a viable economy. That's right. So how did Europe repair itself? Come on. Through slavery and colonialism. That's right. The attack on Africa, That's Karl right. Marx. Really smart white guy once said that capitalism, or, or what he characterized as wage slavery, it's interesting the name to you, wage, wage slavery, slavery, he right. said, required as a pedestal, wage slavery in Europe required as a pedestal, slavery pure, pure and, and simple, simple in the new world. So the whole foundation, the whole economic and political configuration of the world owes its existence to the enslavement and oppression of Africans and other peoples around the world. That's, That's right. why you're looking at permanent warfare in this country today. That's why they're killing people in Yemen. That's why they're killing people in Washington, D.C. and New York and Houston, Texas and all around this country because they have to maintain this relationship. And I want to say this, brothers and sisters, and get out your way, that it's that we have to really fight for political and ideological clarity. Uh, People have told us a long time ago we're supposed to be fighting against racism. Well, that's, it's mind-boggling. They would have us fighting against the the ideas. In the heads of white people. Come on now. But it's, that's not what's killing us. No. Right. I don't give a damn what Trump thinks. Come on now. The reason Trump was a problem was because he commanded Apache helicopters. Yes. Because he could move pigs into our community at yes. will. That, that was the thing about it. So the question never was whether white people liked us. That's the right. question that's was right. whether we had enough power in our own hands. Yeah. So no matter whether white people liked yeah. us or not, we chose the course yeah. of our existence. Yeah. That's what it's about. So you know, I've never heard and you will never hear of any enslaved people gaining freedom by kissing up to the slave master. It's never happened in history. It doesn't ever happen. In order to win freedom, because the slave master can't let you go. The slave master is a parasite. That's right. In fact, it, the slave master can't exist unless it feeds off you and the children that you're going to have forever. That's a necessity for slavery and the slave master. So if you are to be free, 
You can't expect somebody whose livelihood, whose wealth, whose resources requires you to be a slave, whose very existence requires you to be a slave, there ain't enough butt-kissing you can do to turn that around. What has to happen if you want to get the slave master's arm from around your neck, you got to at least cut it off. That's the minimum of what you got to do. And so the struggle is for power. So on today, what makes this so important for us is because the whole system is experiencing crisis. As I mentioned, more than something in the area, 10,000 or more protests and rebellions have happened in this country spontaneously. And that's powerful. But a problem with that is, as powerful as it is, there's no coherent message that's right, coming from it. Right. Saying Black Lives Matter isn't enough. No. Joe Biden said Black Lives Matter. See what, it, what difference it makes. Come on. See what difference it makes. You saw the whole Democratic Congress, the House, get on one knee with Kentikoff, with Kentikoff on being able to say Black Lives Matter. It doesn't, doesn't matter. So the point is that our demands at critical times like this, especially when the people are in motion, especially when the people want motion out of demands, have to tell us where to go, have to explain this reality to us so that we can understand where it is we have to go. And we say black power matters. Black power matters. And then we say down with colonialism. That's a system. I don't give a damn if your colonial master likes you or not. You're going to stay colonized. Down with the system of colonialism. And then as it relates to the kinds of issues that have been driving most of the protests in this country coming deep from the bowels of the African community, we say black community control of the police. That's a democratic demand. And when I say black community control of the police, by any means necessary. We control the security forces in our community. That's something that we all have to understand. So this is what we want to take out to the world today. This is our mission. Uh, one day we go in there and we're going to call them out. Tell them to come out, put your hands up. Because uh, there are going to be a whole bunch of new courts that open up to deal with these criminals after it's over. And they're crazy if they don't think at minimum their ass is going to go on trial. At minimum, I'm not just talking about Trump, I'm talking about Biden, who is responsible for a 500% increase in the number of African people who went to prison in this country. I'm talking about Biden, who along with Clinton put 100,000 cops in the streets, probably one to kill George Floyd. I'm talking about, I'm talking about these forces too. They're there, Obama. Obama. Obama, what a traitorous. And I have a very visceral response to Obama. Because he, he tricked so many of my people. Yes, he did. Well, we knew this Negro when we saw him coming. He got a little pimp limp. Come on, you know now. what I mean? A left hand jump shot and can imitate Al Green. He didn't have to say anything. And you can't call Obama a lie because he didn't promise you a damn thing and he gave you exactly what he promised you, right? So, but what he did do was he confused a lot of people. But those days are over. So you kill the Panthers. You do the start a revolutionary movement in the 1960s. Kept us off the grid for almost three generations. But this is something else that's coming back. So what we are saying is that we're not going back to any of that old 
Not any of that old groveling, kissing the feet, or any other parts of the body of imperialism. We're saying that our presence here today, the message that we are taking here today, when we say black power matters, when we say down with colonialism, when we say black community to control of the police, we are saying no matter what you thought you had with Obama, no matter what you think you got uh, with Biden, black is back. Uhuru. You have been listening to Omali Eshetela, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, speaking at the Black Power Matters rally and march to the White House on Saturday, November 7th, 2020, at Malcolm X Park in Northwest D.C. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Preparation for the king And they line the sidewalks With every sort of shiny thing They will be surprised When they hear him say Take me to the alley Take me to the afflicted ones Take me to the lonely ones That somehow lost their way Let them hear me say I am your friend Come to my table Rest here in my garden You will have a pardon To explore the impact of this year's tumultuous crises on veterans this week we spoke with Garrett Reppenhagen, Executive Director of Veterans for Peace. He talked to us about reclaiming Veterans Day's historical roots as Armistice Day, to remember those devastated by war in a way that doesn't glorify militarism, and spoke of the unique challenges the pandemic has posed for veterans. Well, the original day, you know, is supposed to honor the end of World War I, the ceasefire of hostilities. And it's celebrated every year around the world, different nations. Remember the armistice, that day of peace. There was a belief by many of the service members that were fighting in the trenches in World War One that we were going to exist in a world of perpetual war. And uh, when there was an actual ceasefire and a peace, that it was, it was just overwhelming to them. And to reflect upon the harm and the damage and destruction that was caused is something I think is important that we keep those lessons fresh in our mind. We kind of perverted that by creating Veterans Day out of Armistice Day, and it's kind of a reversal of that reflection. It almost glorifies war. It creates this hero worship of service members, and it only drives kind of a war culture in our society. And that kind of martyrdom 
encourages more youth to sign up and join the military. And it just keeps this awful cycle going. It's just this positive feedback loop that is not very healthy. We're in the longest war in American history in Afghanistan, and we're doing an immense amount of damage to local populations there that are hosting U.S. armed aggression. And Veterans Day takes no account of people who are inflicted by war overseas, the massive amount of innocent casualties that is produced by our conflicts. And Veterans Day just totally ignores that. It centers the veteran only. And a lot of veterans that I know, especially in Veterans for Peace, suffer from moral injury because of the perpetration of violence against other people. So we want to remember the people that have been harmed by us and hold them up and reflect upon that damage. And we don't need a neo-nationalist holiday like Veterans Day to interfere with that, especially when it's supposed to be Armistice Day. Okay. Wow, thank you. Many people may not know that history of Veterans Mm -hmm. Day, and many people may not know about Armistice Day. Yeah, a lot Um, of nations call it Remembrance Day. And I think Remembrance Day is also, you know, a good term because... Yeah, we're remembering our, you know, fallen soldiers and our individual countrymen that sacrificed themselves, but we're also remembering the horror and the conflict and the people that were hurt. I wanted to ask you next, so you're looking uh, at veterans having a greater degree of vulnerability to the virus? A lot of our veterans are older generation, many of them who served in Vietnam, and throughout our military service, we encounter problems that are connected to military service that makes a little bit of a higher health risk as well. Uh, It's COVID-19, I think. We certainly do have a lot of veteran homes that are for our elderly community that have been impacted by coronavirus outbreaks. And a lot of veterans required going into VA services or traveling that keeps them into the population that makes them vulnerable as well. We have a lot of incarcerated veterans and homeless veterans population that also is an immense risk to COVID-19. So it's scary for a lot of our veterans. So let's do the right thing. You know, let's wear masks. Let's take this seriously. If we didn't live in such a a country of uh, exceptionalism that just refuses to be inconvenienced by anything, even if it will save our fellow citizens and fellow Americans, seems like this disease has been built to kill Americans because of our our unwillingness to, to sacrifice at all to make sure that we're part of a community and we're doing the responsible thing. So we wouldn't need to shut down our economy if everybody was just responsible about the damn thing. So let's, uh, let's smart up. Let's uh, wear PPE and wash our hands and do the right thing. Bringing this into what's currently going on, we just had our election. So I was looking for your perspective on whether veterans have been heard during this election and maybe what the veteran perspective is on the results of the presidential election and the potential that Donald Trump will overturn the results. What we were involved heavily in is uh, the election defenders with the front line, a massive coalition to make sure that there wasn't voter suppression and that we had folks out there not under official means of ballot counting and poll watching, but we did have folks out there ready to de-escalate situations and actually did in a, in a handful of occasions de-escalate situations where right-wing militia and right-wing radical activists showed up to interfere with votes, to intimidate voters and try to get people to not vote, in some cases try to close down polling stations, where usually there was a overwhelmingly amount of people of color and, and black or indigenous folks that were trying to vote there. 
So PPE at, at some polling stations and water, standing in line for folks if they had to go to the bathroom, just making sure that every citizen in this country had the opportunity to vote. So we were out there doing that, and we're going to continue that now that there is a really potential of a possible coup by this president. We're going to try to do everything we can to, to make sure our voices are heard, to plea to the military leadership that they don't deploy National Guard or even federal troops to suppress our civil rights and our First Amendment rights, protest and free speech. So we're going to be out there. We're going to continue to at least hold that up. And I think I think a lot of veterans are pleased about the election results at this point. I think I saw the numbers and that an overwhelmingly amount of veterans swung left in this election and voted for Joe Biden with the exit polling data. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a new trend, I think, where we stereotype the military community as being this right-wing bastion for the conservative party. And I don't think that was the case this election. Well, as you said, and I know your organization is not partisan, but this president has really not made himself very popular among the military by some of his comments. <laughs> president Trump doesn't understand the concept, I think, of sacrificing. And when he makes comments, you know, about service members being losers or suckers or what's in it for them when he tours the, you know, National Cemetery, it's obvious that he just doesn't get it. I mean, he's a privileged person who was born into luxury with a silver spoon in his mouth. He has very little connection to the average person in America. Like, how often has he had to clean out his own gutters or taken out his own trash or done his own dishes? You know, I mean, he's so disconnected from the average person, and he's even further disconnected from, I think, service members, and he'll never understand what it feels like to really give yourself for a nation or even for his own family members, I think. Veterans for Peace and other organizations call on us to use Armistice Day to stand for a nuclear-free world and a sustainable future. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And Chantel's interview with Garrett Reppenhagen, Executive Director of Veterans for Peace, will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to the show today. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast, On The Ground, with Esther Averam, that's On The Ground, W. Esther Averam, is on all your podcast platforms. And if you check out the podcast, I would so appreciate a nice rating. The new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included a Goodbye Trump mixed by Floyd DJ Waheed Aaron, Take Me to the Alley by Gregory Porter, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Mr. Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for being a part of our audience, and a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon and PayPal for helping to make the show possible. You too can partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C., 
Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month helps us to keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. Go to our page at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the show and bonus material or you can see all ways to support including on PayPal and Giving Tuesday on our website which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.